We'll hear argument next to number 98-2043, Hunt-Wesson versus Franchise Tax Board. You're admonished, do not talk so long as you're in the courtroom. The court remains in session. Mr. Hellerstein. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case involves a constitutional challenge to two mechanisms that California employs to deny non-domiciliary corporations, like Petitioner here, an otherwise allowable interest expense deduction. Each of these mechanisms provides an independent basis for invalidating the application of California statute to Petitioner. First, as Respondent has stipulated, California denied Petitioner an interest expense deduction entirely because it received non-taxable dividends from non-unitary subsidiaries. Second, California denied Petitioner an interest deduction because those dividends were paid by subsidiaries that did no business in California. It is worth stressing at the outset, Your Honors, that the second mechanism is indistinguishable from the taxing scheme that this Court struck down in Fulton Corporation versus Faulkner. Well, I suppose we don't have to answer all the questions here. If we were to find that the interest offset is unconstitutional because it taxes income over which California lacks jurisdiction to tax, that's the end of it, presumably. That is correct, Justice O'Connor. Either, either basis would be — would invalidate the statute. Now, during, during the tax years at issue here, 1980 to 82, Petitioner Hunt Wesson, which is the successor in interest to the original taxpayer in this case, the Beatrice Foods Company, earned roughly $75 million in dividends from non-unitary subsidiaries. Now, it is undisputed here that California had no power to tax those dividends under this Court's decisions in Asarco, in Woolworth, and in LIC. But Beatrice was an Illinois domiciliary the same way Hunt and Wesson is? Uh, actually, yes, Chief Justice Rehnquist. Uh, uh, Beatrice was an uh, a Illinois domiciliary. Actually, Hunt Wesson is a California uh, domiciliary. But they, again, they were the successor in interest. During the years at issue, we are dealing with an Illinois domiciliary. Now, during those same years, California denied Beatrice an interest deduction. Beatrice, I think. It's named after a little town in Nebraska, and I think it's pronounced Beatrice. Beatrice. Mr. Chief Justice, I will pronounce it Beatrice. Uh, <laughs> uh, on a uh, Smart move. During these years, Beatrice uh, received uh, — its its interest expense deduction was denied on a dollar-for-dollar basis simply because it received these uh, uh, non-taxable dividends. There is no evidence, no evidence at all in this case that the interest expense bore any relationship to these dividends. Uh, Indeed, even if we had proven, we had proven that every penny of our interest expense had gone to generate uh, California taxable income, we would have been denied this uh, interest expense deduction simply because we had these non-taxable dividends. Now, 
this but let me ask this question. What if the interest expense had been incurred to generate different uh, non-unitary income? Say the, you borrowed money to buy a lot of securities in Japan, where, and, whereas the income here is from income from securities in Germany. Uh, would it then be permissible? Do you understand my, my question? I'm not sure. I mean, I mean the, 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 the way that I want to give you a hypothetical in which the interest expense is incurred to generate non-unitary income, but not the same, not the non-unitary, in, not, not the same non-unitary income that might be earned elsewhere. Yes, uh, Justice Tease, I understand your question, and, and the answer to your question is that. This statute works regardless of any proof of any relationship. There could be a relationship. There couldn't be a relationship. It's like throwing darts at a dartboard. Well, might work, might not. Well, maybe in Justice Stevens' hypothetical, uh, it, it wouldn't be deductible in the first place. Well, in, in, just, in Justice Stevens' hypothetical, if we have interest expense under the California regime, we get the deduction first against any uh, interest, uh, uh, business interest income we have, and then we're denied the deduction if we have these non-taxable dividends. But, nothing but the else interest matters. has to be business interest income. Does it not used uh, for, for a purpose? The, the, the money has to be used in a, for a purpose in connection with the business? Or does it not? The, the interest expense that we have, the interest expense is defined at the federal level. That is, we use a federal, federal taxing scheme. So the federal government does not distinguish between whether or not the interest expense is business or non-business. Now, under the California statute and under their own, uh, uh, their own schedule, the f- very first thing we do is we take any interest expense that is, in fact, attributable to the non-business income, and we take that out of the mechanism. Then the only thing that is left is the interest expense associated with a business. It is that interest expense that, in fact, is put into this little uh, mechanism that California has that denies us, on a dollar-for-dollar basis, the deduction against the non-unitary dividend. Is that the subject of that — was that the subject of sort of the disagreement as to whether, in fact, under the California scheme you are supposed to deduct the, the non-business income from uh, interest expense? From the- that is correct, Justice Souter. Let me explain that, because there has been a dispute, and both sides say the dispute doesn't matter. Um, Could you tell me for yeah. — I was about to ask uh, what you mean by non-business interest expense. Is it is it just uh, uh, interest expense uh, or, or, or non-business income, for that matter? Does that mean just income that California can't tax, or does it — have some other meaning. Yes. Let's get a definition. Okay. Let's start with non. Let's start with non-business income. Non-business income is income that, under this uniform statute that many states have, is allocated. That is, is sent to one jurisdiction or another, rather than put into this mix that's mixed up in a portion. Now, really, business income, but, but just can't be. T- Taxed in this oh. case by California. Well, let, let me let me. I, I must be a bit more. Uh, uh, I got to parse it a bit because, in our case, that's correct. In our case, the particular non-business income we're talking about are non-unitary dividends, and there's no dispute that California can't tax that. Right. If, for example, uh, Beatrice had a uh, unrelated beauty parlor uh, in California, uh, California could have taxed that. That would might be non-business income, but if it was in California. It could have been taxable. But in this case, there's no distinction. I mean, there's no dispute that the non-business income is not taxable. Now, to answer your question about what is non-business interest expense, I think we use that 
term, and I don't think there would be any disagreement here, we would use that term to describe any interest expense that could be directly traced to the non-business dividends. If, for example, and there's no evidence in this case that anything like this happened, if, for example, we had gone out and borrowed money to acquire the non-unitary subsidiaries, and you could trace that borrowing to the non-unitary subsidiaries, then to be sure we would have non-business interest expense. And we would, and our position here is that California could properly deny that. They could properly deny it if they had a tracing mechanism, which they don't, if they said, we've seen that you've gone out and you've borrowed money to buy something that's going to generate income that you can't tax. We accept that. Indeed, we even accept their, their notion, which is that it's impossible to trace. All interest is fungible. All money is fungible. Who knows where we use this? And I th- we, again, we, 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 can, we accept that proposition. The problem is that California statute doesn't implement that proposition. When, in fact, you don't know where the interest expense is earned, that is, you can't do the tracing that we're talk- talking about, what, what the jurisdictions do. I'm not sure what you accept insofar as the, the fact that all money is fungible and it can't be traced. You say you accept that proposition. Well, no, what I'm saying is ju- uh, and, and, and that's it, — it seems to me that you might accept the proposition in some instances, but not in every instance, or then you lose your case. Uh, or, or am I wrong? I, I think, Justice Kennedy, I, 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 I don't believe you're right that we lose our case, because we are willing to we, — we accept the proposition that a state can reasonably take the position, and California, in this case, could reasonably have taken the position that all — money is fungible. And therefore, it is impossible ever to trace on a direct basis the dollar of interest income to a dollar of interest expense. But even accepting that proposition, one thing is clear from when you accept that proposition, what you were then saying, you don't know where money is coming from or going, but then it cannot be, it cannot be assigned disproportionately to non-taxable income rather than to taxable income. So even accepting the notion that money is fungible, all we're saying, and we're not saying, we're not trying to constitutionalize any, any particular methodology, all we're saying is do what 48 other states or 45 other states do. Do what the federal government does. Spread it around on any of a variety of reasonable bases, including if you read the letter that California has already written to General Electric, if they lose this case, spread it around based on where your assets are. That is, you don't know where the money is coming or, from. Or, de- or deny the deduction altogether. Uh, Justice Kennedy, if California wanted to deny all interest deduction to all taxpayers, whether they had taxable or non-taxable income, we wouldn't be here. We would think that's quite arbitrary. It might no longer be a net income tax, but that's not the constitutional issue raised by this case. The problem here is that what California has done is, under the guise of saying money is fungible, come up with a mechanism that disproportionately assigns income, at least in our case, to the non-taxable income. So, based on the undisputed facts of this case, California is taking the position that somehow we never make a dollar, a penny. We never make a penny from interest expense invested in non-business income. But if, if California could deny interest deductions in total, 
your claim here is more of an equal protection claim, that you've been treated differently than other California corporations and similarly situated. And, and I'm not sure that's made out. Uh, no, no, Chief Justice Rehnquist. Our claim is that while, while we agree that California could uh, have an across-the-board uh, non-discriminatory treatment of, uh, of, of interest uh, expense, what's, what California is doing uh, and they made they, the court below held they were uh, the trial court held they were violating the equal protection clause, but we've not raised that here. We're saying that what this does, what this statute does, is two things. First, it sweeps non-taxable income into the tax base. That's a due process violation. That's an extraterritorial component. California, in effect, says that we're going to measure your tax by these dividends out there that we can't we can't get our whole hands on under Sarko, under Woolworth, number one. Number two, we are also, uh, in our view, this, this also has a discriminatory component because when you look at who gets this interest deduction, it's only the domiciliary rather than the non-domiciliary. As arbitrary as the statute is, it helps the domiciliary because these this interest expense is always attributed to the non-business income, which in this case would be taxable by California, so the non so the domiciliary gets the full interest deduction, whereas the non-domiciliary I don't see how that helps you. I mean, I'm not saying you don't have a good case in the other part, but I mean, after all, if it's an Illinois corporation, I, I take it if they allocate all of the interest income to the Illinois uh, Mongolian sheep farm, uh, uh, that Illinois, uh, it, they'll get the deduction on their Illinois income tax. Uh, no, Justice Breyer, because Illinois does not have this arbitrary system like California does. Illinois would take the position that that this uh, one or two positions. Assuming it could either trace, it could say we're going to directly. Uh, does that trace. really happen? So, in other words, when California insists that the tin can business allocate its interest income to its Mongolian sheep farm, uh, the the uh, Illinois. Uh, will not allow them to deduct that interest expense that California shifted over there. That, 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 is, that is correct. In other words, let me just make sure that I, I mean. Uh, well, I'm making up my, but right, I, no, but, my, right. I imagine a tin can company selling all of the United States. It owns a Mongolian sheep farm. Exactly. Right. Okay. And, now, and, and, now, right. and therefore, the, this would, it would generate non-business, non-business dividends. California would say, gee, you have interest equal to those non-business dividends. No, no, de- no deduction. And then in Illinois, then the question would be whether Illinois uh, would take the same position. The answer is no, because Illinois, being a state that is not off the radar screen like California, but does what other states do, they look at their interest expense, see whether or not this interest was associated first with the outer Mongolian sheep farm. If it wasn't, if it was, they get the deduction because this is a domiciliary state. If it wasn't, it would go into the pool and they might spread it around. So. That's, that's how it would work. Um, Mr. Halston, your position is not that California couldn't reject any, any part of this. It could have an offset, but it has to be according to some apportionment, some reasonable apportionment. That is precisely right, Justice Ginsburg. Our, our position is that there are a wide variety of acceptable methodologies for uh, assigning or allocating income Two various jurisdictions. Uh, they are in place in all the states. They are in place at the, at the federal level. And what we're simply saying is that you cannot have allocation by wishful thinking, which is essentially what uh, California has here. It's a simply what is, is California? Assuming we, we agree, that what does what California do for, with respect to these back years that are already uh, 
have already been treated this way? Well, I can tell you that our adopt a, a what you would consider a constitutional rule and uh, apply them to those past years. Uh, Justice Scalia, I can only speak to two specific situations. That one that I'm aware of because it's our case. Another because it's in the Amicus brief. Um, Certainly with regard to our case, there has been a sti- we have stipulated as to the refund to which we're entitled should we prevail in this case. As my understanding, from certainly from the letter that uh, California has written to Jen- on, on, on the basis of what? Some kind of apportionment scheme that you're, that you're willing to uh, accept? No, the, the, the stipulation, the stipulation was based on a, it, it was, it was an all or nothing proposition. We were going to, we, you know, there might have been a settlement negotiations earlier, but at this point, we agreed. Here's how get it all back. And if we win, it's too late for them to uh, to say, "Okay, we'll apportion some of it." They, they, none of it would be apportioned. for 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 these particular years. That, that, that is correct, Justice Scalia. However, I think it's quite clear from the uh, from the letter appended to the General Electric's brief that California is aware of this litigation. They have written letters to General Electric and presumably to other taxpayers, saying, "By the way, if we lose this case, you better apportion your interest expense by." A reasonable method, namely uh, an asset allocation method. So I, well, on, on, on that basis, maybe you could help me understand what the state says in its red brief at, at page 21. It says if a deduction of the entire amount of interest expenses allowed, the corporation stands to gain a tax windfall. And then it goes on. I, 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 I take it that's only because California does not have an apportionment system in in place. Is, is that correct? I, mean, I, I think, frankly, I mean, is that the way you would answer that? Or say, well, sure, but if you if you have an apportionment scheme in place like other states do, there won't be one for Is that how you answer that? Actually, uh, Justice Kennedy, the way I would answer that, I think that's because of California's California-centric view of the universe. In fact, there is no windfall because Beatrice pays taxes in 45 other states so that so that the, the, the any income — we're not talking about tax-exempt municipal bonds here. I mean, income that California says is not taxable in California because it's not a unitary — part of the unitary business is presumably taxable somewhere else. The only, only, the only time there would be a windfall would be if the income that California is not taxing under a proper scheme is somehow not taxed well, by the other jurisdiction. Well, is the answer there wouldn't be a windfall if there were an apportionment scheme? Would, would you accept that answer? I would certainly accept that if, 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 if California apportioned in the way that other states apportioned, there would be no, there would be no windfall. That, well, is, that is correct. You, but you don't contend, do you, Mr. Hellerstein, that California has to have the same method of taxing that even if 48 other states have it, the, the Constitution doesn't require them to have Absolutely it. not, Mr. Chief Justice. Absolutely not. We are saying that there are — we are — we are saying that their method is so far off the radar screen is so different from any method that even approximates a reasonable method, and there are a large variety of them, whether it's assets or gross receipts or net income, any of those would be appropriate. Indeed, to look at this Court's own opinions, this Court has looked at this problem in a number of instances, generally when the question was whether or not a taxpayer or how a taxpayer should attribute expense between taxable income and tax-exempt income, generally either municipal bond income that wasn't taxable at the federal level or, alternatively, federal taxable income that wasn't taxable by the states. And what the Court has said, when the Court has looked at this, the Court has really rejected both extremes. The Court has, in, the court has rejected the extreme view of the states, which has been to say, or, or the taxing authority, when the taxing authority has said, 
you may not deduct one penny of this expense. That is, the expense must be matched dollar for dollar against the tax-exempt income, which is what the kind of situation arising in national life. The Court said you can't do that because that really undermines the exemption. On the other hand, when taxpayers have been greedy, when taxpayers have said, we don't want one dollar of our expense assigned to our non-taxable income because that undermines the exemption. The Court has said, no, that's not right either. What the Court has said is really precisely what most states and the federal government have said in this kind of situation is when you don't know, when you, when you can't trace the, the amounts, what you do is you spread it evenly. This Court has said there is no reason in law, no sound legal or economic reason for distinguishing between the taxable and the non-taxable dollar. That's the theme. So long as there is some reasonable apportionment between taxable and non-taxable, that, I think, is all the Constitution requires. What the Constitution forbids is a disproportionate assignment of the income to values that cannot be taxed. Can you, because I'm not totally familiar, which part of the Constitution forbids that? Forbids? I mean, let's assume you're completely right. Right. That this is totally irrational. I mean, it's right. completely unfair. They're, they're taxing income that arises in other places. What, what is — what can you just trace through for one second what the argument is that that violates the Constitution? Uh, y yes, Justice Breyer. It, really, it would depend you know, on — there would be cases that support you, but, I mean, what's the well, reasoning? Well, I guess you know, it, it would depend on the provision. Well, the, the basic thought is that — by arbitrarily denying the deduction, you are taxing the income. So, and what prevents California from taxing income from Mongolia or Illinois? The, or both the, the due process and the commerce clause, as this court has held in Allied Signal and, and Asarco and Woolworth, in the intergovernmental immunities cases. That is, when we're dealing with, uh, let's deal with the, the modern cases. We're dealing with state taxation of federal obligations, such as in the Bartow Bank case. There, Georgia would have been forbidden under the under really McCulloch versus Maryland, but as embodied in, in now in federal statutes, from taxing the federal, uh, from taxing the federal income. And some of the earlier cases are based on the. But the, fe the the federal principle that a state can't tax a federal entity uh, wouldn't necessarily carry over if you weren't dealing with a federal entity. Well, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, the, the, the way the cases have, have arisen um, with regard to that issue, that is, it, it is a. A, a, uh, a given proposition of, I think, of federal constitutional law and also now a federal statutory law that states may not tax income from federal obligations. So a state, for example, could not come along and deny, as California has denied, an interest expense deduction arbitrarily assigned to every dollar of federal income that it can't tax. Yes, but income from a federal obligation may be different for constitutional purposes than income from some other kind of obligation. That is correct. That is correct. So what is it that one day California says, you know, we're taxing people. We don't want to be fair. And what we're going to do is we are going to tax income that arises in Illinois. And moreover, it's going to be terrible because companies are going to have to pay more tax than they have income. Well, I thought we'd held an allied signal that it violates the due process clause for That's a state to That's what I wondered. It's, al it's the due process clause that it does that because it takes their property without due process. It is both, indeed, as Justice O'Connor has pointed out. And in allied signal, the Court said that the extraterritorial analysis or the, the — the bar on state taxation of extraterritorial values is rooted both in the due process and the commerce clauses. So you'd have two constitutional bases um, for that. Well, uh, what about the argument that, indeed, uh, your client is getting a windfall because uh, home states like Illinois 
give a tax break for this uh, this car- category of investment income? Well, in, in fact, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg, Illinois is not a tax haven. Um, and during the years at issue here, uh, the — and this, by the way, these were years during which there was considerable uncertainty as to whether or not income was apportionable. Uh, there were the — some members of the court will recall the Osarco and Woolworth and, and container cases in the 80s where there was uncertainty. Illinois had a, a regulation at that — during those years that actually allowed a domiciliary corporation like um, — uh, like Beatrice, and the regulation is 300-2 per NC, per N2, per A, that during those years allowed a domiciliary corporation to apportion its income. Now, that was a decision made by Illinois. Illinois had the constitutional power, and indeed our uh, — it, it is stipulated uh, in the — uh, I believe it's stipulation paragraph 8, it is stipulated that non-unitary dividends weren't taxable by the state of Illinois. So there is no, uh, there's no windfall tax haven issue here. You don't think that matters, though, do you? No. If, if Illinois decides to be generous and not tax something, California, if it has no jurisdiction to tax, can say, hey, there's, you know, somebody's getting a break. Uh, we, we ought to be able to reap that tax. That, the, it would still not be, uh, not be justified, right? Th- that is precisely right, Justice Scalia. California's power to tax does not expand based on Illinois' decision whether or not to tax. And this, we'd have uh, — I'd like to reserve the next uh, five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. Very well, Mr. Hellerstein. Uh, Mr. Liu, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I think the issue before this Court can be simply stated, and that is, what interest expense is California constitutionally required to treat as a tax deduction? As this Court has held, a state there's no constitutional obligation to permit a taxpayer to take a deduction for an expense which relates to income which that state is barred from taxing. The petitioner in this case has conceded that states such as California have the constitutional authority to allocate expenses to different streams of income, and more importantly concedes that states have the authority to do so by applying formulas that assign interest expense to income that is not taxable by the state of California. The petitioner's narrow control. Yeah, but the problem here is uh, California has chosen to allocate 100 percent of the taxpayer's interest expense in excess of its, its business interest income to its generation of non-business income that's not taxable by well, California. Well, the, the statute. I mean, it, it's, it's California's choice to have this scheme, and it's an enacted one that does raise concerns of trying to tax uh, extraterritorial income, in effect. I mean, California wouldn't have to do it this way. And California could have a reasonable allocation method, but what, what's the rationale for the scheme it does have, which just seems uh, to, to go beyond what California is authorized to do? Well, the, the answer to your question, Justice O'Connor, is that what California is trying to do with the statute is basically um, eliminate a, tubo, a double tax benefit that arises whenever a corporation, number one, incurs debt and 
um, and, th and there was therefore interest expense generated by that debt, and at the same time has funds invested in non-taxable activities mm -hmm. which produce non-taxable income. Mm -hmm. The problem is that part of the debt, either directly or indirectly, is used to support the non-taxable activities. But and you solved that problem by denying it against all uh, non-unitary income, whether or not the interest expense was related to it. Well, what the, what, the sta what the statute is attempting to do, Justice Kennedy, is to essentially close that loophole in the most effective way possible. Well, and of course, it's always effective <laughs> to, to, uh, uh, if, if you deny apportionment. <laughs> well, the, the theory behind doing it on a dollar-for-dollar -dollar basis, and, and if I may just take one step back, the formula first allocates interest expense to against the corporation's business interest income on a dollar-for-dollar -dollar basis. And if the business interest is big enough, then there's going to be no problem. That's correct. All of it is all of it is deductible. Of course. To the extent that any remains, that is allocated also on a dollar-for-dollar -dollar basis against the corporation's non-business income. And, it, and again, it's intended basically to eliminate the possibility that any amount of that interest expense which is related to the generation of income that's not taxable by the state of California is used by the corporation to reduce its California tax base. Yes, but it's not allocable against all its non-business income. It's, it's at, well, it, the answer to your question is allocable against its non-business interest and dividend income. That's what the statute calls for. My, my, my can company has no business interest income. It's not in the lending business. It, says, it sells a million dollars' worth of cans in California. It happens to borrow about $900,000 to get the tin. Now, what conceivable reason does, does California have to allocate that 900000 that they used to buy the tin for the cans? some kind of income it has from the sheep farm in Florida. Because, because the money that is borrowed basically is, can, is used to free up or other You say money. you don't know. Maybe they're lying. They said they used it for tin, but maybe they're not telling the truth. Well, okay. Other states have dealt with that problem by saying, since we can't trust anybody here and it's hard to trace, what we'll do is we will proportionately allocate. If you have a million coming in from the tin business and you have 100,000 from the uh, uh, sheep farm, do it 10 percent to the sheep farm, 90 percent to the tin. Uh, now, what, what, why, what, what possible reason is it for not taking some variation on that theme? But of course, if you can show it went to the sheep farm, that's the end of it. You win. But where you just don't know. There's nothing wrong with a proportional approach, Your Honor, except that it doesn't really close the loophole. How does entirely. it not close the loophole? Because to the extent that less than a dollar of interest expense is used to offset a dollar of non-business income, there's still that differential that exists. Sure, there's a differential. The, the sheep farm had nothing whatsoever to do with the lending. I mean, well, I don't see why you call that a loophole. The, the assumption is that it's not, it's not related. And yeah, right. Well, you mean maybe it is related? Indirectly, Well, yes. maybe the tin is really related. So why don't you allocate all the deduction for the tin to the sheep, too? Well, the answer is that you just don't know that. And, and, what, and what California is trying to do 
is to prevent any of that interest that might be related to the generation of income that's, that it cannot tax to be used to reduce its California tax base. When you say they just don't know, what you're referring to is that a process in which most states know by virtue of a reasonable uh, apportionment formula. And so when you say, well, we just don't know, that seems to be the equivalent of saying, well, we can't apportion, but you clearly can. Well, there's no problem, constitutional problem, with apportionment. I mean, that is one way to deal with the problem, for sure. But to the extent that interest, in fact, does relate to non-business or non-taxable income, there's still that there's still that possibility that a portion of that interest expense that, in fact, relates to the generation of non-taxable income is going to be applied to reduce the corporation's Yeah, but you don't know either. And instead of adopting an apportionment formula, what you, in effect, do is is adopt an irrebuttable presumption. Uh, And uh, as, as against an apportionment formula which provides a rational basis, and an irrebuttable presumption which ignores the facts, due process normally requires the rational process. Well, I, I can only say that the, the objective of the state is to attempt to eliminate that, that possibility of, of the taxpayer receiving a double tax benefit. Well, you certainly do that. Yeah. No, no question. You, you Achieve that objective. And, and, and toward that objective, it seems that the way that California does it is reasonable because a dollar-for-dollar offset of interest expense and interest or, or interest or dividend income basically returns the corporation to the same economic position. Well, it does if there's a dollar-dollar for relationship between the expense and, 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 the, uh, and the income. And you're, in effect, saying, we don't care. We will simply assume that, and we will assume that uh, by, by means of this presumption. And due process requires rationality, not irrebuttable presumptions. Well, I, you know, we, we can't say that it doesn't or it doesn't. That, that well, is. If, but you have to say what, that it does. You, you don't have a right to send a tax bill to every non-domiciliary of California for, for all of their income. And you say, well, you know, we can't be sure that, uh, that we can't tax it. Uh, it's just irrational. You, you, you either demonstrate that it comes from this other uh, uh, non-taxable income or, or if you can't demonstrate it, then, you know, do a reasonable apportioning. But you, you do neither one. You're just saying, here, here's a tax bill. Pay it. Oh, we, we're not sure where this income comes from, but we don't want you to get away with something. Well, it, it seems to me that that the that the economic reality, the the dollar for dollar allocation is is really an attempt to reflect the economic reality that interest income is the economic counterpart to interest expense. If a corporation Borrows you money. treat the interest that's paid, say you get, have a mortgage on a new plant that you're using in California, you treat it as a functional equivalent of interest to, to buy securities in, in Mongolia that are going to have nothing to do with the unitary business. 
you, you just merge all of your interest income and treat it as fungible. That's right. From your interest expense, I mean. That's correct. Yeah. And notwithstanding the fact that it's very easy to identify the fact some of the income produced by those borrowings is not part of the unitary business. Well, I, I, think, that, I think that if the Court accepts the, the notion of fungibility, then the, the problem is being able to — There could have been spent elsewhere so that it's hard to say that it necessarily went to this. It's saving you spending other money elsewhere. Of course, that's, that's true. Correct. But if you, if you adopt that fungibility principle, which your opponent is quite willing to accept, what it leads to is not the conclusion that you can tax all of it, but the conclusion that you should apportion it. Well, well I, I disagree with the idea that, that it is being taxed. I, I, after all, the, the formula itself allows for, as a first step, an allocation of interest expense against a corporation's business interest income. So to the extent that the amount of business interest income is, swallows up the entire amount of the expense, then all of it is allocated to reduce the corporation's California tax. I don't see what that — I mean, most businesses, except if they're in the financial business, don't have a lot of business interest income compared to their other business. So I don't think that helps too much, does it? Well, I think it, 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 I think it, it demonstrates that the, the statute applies its rules in a fair and even-handed way. I mean, certainly it is possible under California statute for a corporation to come out better — than it would under a proportional approach. And, and I think that that is one of the, the, the things that, that has to be understood, that the, the statute does allocate interest expense to, to interest income and, uh, and dividend income. In a, in a fair and an even-hand basis. In fact, the first step of the statute allocates it to business interest income. And, and with regard to the um, — and, and what the statute does, it basically shifts those deductions which it considers to be attributable to non-taxable income to the to — the, it attributes that to the income which is then taxed which is then allowed as a deduction by the state of domicile if, in fact, that state utilizes a statutory scheme which is similar to California's. Now, it is true that none of the other states currently adopt such a provision, but under this Court's internal consistency analysis, I'm not sure whether or not that's a constitutionally significant point. If, in fact, it were the case that all of — that all states utilize this formula, then the taxpayer would be able to have the benefit of all of the deductions which California has essentially shifted over to the state of domicile and enjoy a reduction in its non-business income in that state. It is — the statute simply attempts to assign interest expense to its proper use or application. And it does so on a dollar-for-dollar -dollar basis, both against its business income and against the corporation's non-business income. In that sense, it is applied even-handedly. And again, those deductions would be available to the 
corporation in the state of domicile under a consistent internal consistency analysis. Now, as I said, the the proportionality approach is is one way of dealing with the problem. But again, it doesn't solve the problem of a of a corporation obtaining a tax benefit um, completely, because to the extent that less than oh, wait, only 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 if Illinois or you know some other state decides to give it the tax benefit, and that's none of your business. If some other state wants to give them a tax benefit, that, that's none of California's business. Sure, I, I agree. So, but that's the tax benefit you're talking about. No, I'm talking about the tax benefit that arises when a corporation incurs debt, is able to write off the interest expense from that debt, and at the same time use that debt, either directly or indirectly, to generate income, which California is not permitted to tax. That is the double tax benefit that I'm talking about. Yeah, but California asserts here the right to to treat it as though um, it was all used, the, the money, to generate non-business. Income. That's right. That, that is correct. Even though we know on the facts of this case, don't we, that that isn't true. <laughs> and there's no made by California to do any allocation. Well, I don't, I don't agree that under the facts of this case that that was, that it, that is in fact the case. If the court is, if Your Honor is referring to the stipulation, then, then I don't believe that that is what the party stipulated. If the party stipulated to, where are you reading from, Mr. Lou? I'm reading from um, Joint Appendix, page 21, stipulation number 14. I believe that is what Justice O'Connor was. Well, that doesn't cover that point. But, um, and, and I can find it elsewhere, I assume. But let me ask you this. Let's assume what I said is true. The effect of the California provision would be to um, not allocate it at all. It al- well. You treat it as though um, all of the expense uh, incurred in borrowing money uh, went to the outside non-unitary business. Well, what — Again, and I know that I've said this before, but what California is attempting to do is basically ensure that none of the interest expense was used, in fact, to generate income which California is not permitted to tax. Is it it your position, Mr. Liu, that uh, California in the long run by its system is not able to tax any more income than it would be by the proportionality just because uh, some people get a break and others don't under it? Uh, I'm not sure if I understand your question completely, Your Honor, but let me try to answer it um, this way. I think that the argument 
the, the criticisms that can be leveled against California statute can also be leveled against a proportionality approach in the sense that a certain portion of, of interest expense is being allocated to non-business, non-taxable income. Now, we don't know whether or not the amount that was allocated is the correct amount, but it does have the effect of increasing the corporation's tax in the state of California. So to the extent that that can be viewed as an indirect taxation of non-taxable income, that is what that is what is being done there, and that's the same criticism that's being made in our case as well. You can't ask the state to do more than it can do. I mean, if it's hard to hard to do it, hard to allocate it, so that's an effort. That's a reasonable effort, so they're not unreasonable when they make a reasonable effort, even if it doesn't all work out perfectly. But given the possibility of that reasonable effort, what justification is there for taking the money that's not apportionable? Well, again, the justification. Same argument, Your Honor. And, and, that I, and that, I think, is it's, it's a reasonable objective. And the approach that it takes is the surest way of closing well, that loop. It's sure all right. It's 100 percent dollar for dollar. I mean, it makes no effort to apportion. And you're going to have to persuade me that that's reasonable, because I don't find anything in what you've said that makes me think that's reasonable. No other state does that. There's no effort made to allocate it. I just I have yet to hear a reason. Except I, I want to be sure, 100 percent sure. I guess, I guess the, uh, the California Supreme Court case on which the uh, California Court of Appeal decision here was based was decided a long time ago. That's correct. Before our decisions in Allied Signal and ASARCO. That's correct. Right. And it's sort of hard for you to give up that, that old 1972 California Supreme Court opinion. Well, you know, I, I think that, I, I think that in, in that the court, the California Supreme Court has held that it does not result that the, that the allocation of, of um, interest expense to, to non-taxable income on a dollar-for-dollar basis does not constitute a tax. Um, I think it, it's still applicable here, even in light of uh, allies' signal and, and other cases. The argument has been made that if you look at how the federal taxation works, federal income taxation, in the main there is an allocation. But there's also an argument that at least in one respect, the federal income tax, uh, I forgot, but it's, it has something to do with with foreign investment or foreign corporations, do, do, the, that the Internal Revenue Code does what California does in that one discrete area. That is my understanding, yes, Your Honor, that there is a dollar-for-dollar dollar allocation allowed under certain circumstances um, in the federal uh, scheme. It's so you, you, you could make the argument that if it's rational for the Internal Revenue Code to do that, so it's rational for California. To. I, I think there, there's a base. There's a basis for doing that, Your Honor. Um, I, I also believe that that uh, in uh, that Section 265 of the Internal Revenue Code as well provides for a dollar-for-dollar dollar 
offset in certain, well, in certain I, situations. If I'm right, I don't know. Is this the only place that does that in the code is a, a rule which my law clerk found, which is a controlled foreign corporation netting rule. And that has to do with a circumstance where you have to allocate infant's expense to certain foreign source income earned when you lend money to a, con a controlled foreign corporation, and there's both been an increase in lending and an increase in borrowing. And under those circumstances, there is some rationality where you've loaned more money to your offshore corporation, and at the same time, you've increased the borrowing. So I could at least see a rationale there for saying we're going to assume this extra lending is allocated to the extra borrowing. But I don't think you have even anything like that here. Well, I, I — In other words, it's a tracing rule rather than an allocation rule. And all that your opponent is asking is that you either allocate or trace, but you've done neither. The, well the, — The federal provision <coughs> seems, to, seems to try to trace. Right. The, right. The California statute is definitely not a tracing rule. It's, it's actually just an assignment rule. Um, and and it, it's basically based on the idea that it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to trace interest expense to its ultimate use for application. And, again, it's just based on the idea that this is what the, the California's interest in trying to close this loophole, that's what the statute is trying to do. And I think that to the extent that that constitutes a legitimate state objective, I think it certainly accomplishes that goal, and it does so, I think, in a fair way in the, in the sense that it does allow that first step to allocate interest expense to um, biz, on, on the basis of business interest income, um, and to the extent that there's any remaining, it does allocate it against its non-business income. Why can't you just ask the taxpayer to assume the burden of persuading you that any in interest, any income or interest deduction that it seeks to obtain is attributable to the unitary business? Well, I, I think that that is, that is one way to go, but I think that that's, that's also subject to um, manipulation as well. Your well, but the same is true of payroll and, and uh, other Expenses in the in this gigantic balance sheet and income statement they have to prepare to do these things. I, I, There's always room for. That, and that's I think the problem is is to if if you're trying to determine you know a corporation's motive I think that's just as a matter of tax administration extremely difficult to do. Um, you know it's, it's essentially a facts and circumstances kind of test, and I I just think that um, it's extremely difficult to administer that kind of test. Um, you know, especially for a state like California. That, I think, is what the problem is, and that is, that is why there is this statute which essentially eliminates any type of um, concept of motive or, or, you know, purpose and just says, look, if you have interest expense and you are using some of your capital to generate income that is not taxable in the state of California, that there is the — It does seem to me it's not entirely unlike, say, taking the, the president of the corporation's salary. You do some allocating there. you got to — you know, there's room for — I don't know why interest is any harder to allocate than something like that. Oh, it's — well, interest is harder to allocate than other — the thing about interest is that it is 
extremely fungible, I guess, is, is the best way to put it. And, and you can't The be, dollars paid to the President of the Corporation are pretty fungible, too. Is there any salary? I mean. Is there any requirement that the interest deduction uh, be based on loans that were made in California, or can they be made anywhere? I believe they can be made anywhere. Then. Do you think that California, if we were not to accept your position and were to, to say that you have to make some effort to allocate, California could do that? Yes, I, I think it, it — Without having a new statute that does it. That is, the, the example, which, which company was it that we have? Uh, in these G. papers. G, was it G, General Motors or General Electric? I don't remember. It, 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 could the tax commissioner say, well, if what we did is no good, there's something else that is good, so we're going to do that, even though we don't have a statute that so provides? Yes, it is my belief that that could probably be done pursuant to other California regulatory authority, which allows for um, — a, a spreading of interest expense um, similar to the method that has been um, endorsed by the petitioner. I don't think that it would necessarily require a, the enactment of a new statute. I don't really have anything else. If the Court has any further questions, I'll be happy to answer them. Other than that, I'm done. Thank you, Mr. Liu. Uh, Mr. Hellerstein, you have five minutes remaining. I have three very brief points. First, uh, with regard to the CFC netting rule that both Justice Breyer and Justice Ginsburg have referred to, you're quite right, Justice Breyer. The uh, CFC netting rule is, in fact, a very finely tuned tracing rule, as Justice Scalia said. It only arises in a situation when there's unrelated — you go to some unrelated lender, you borrow money, you then lend relend that money to your controlled foreign corporation. The controlled foreign corporation then pays you interest. That's the situation we're talking about. If California had anything like that, we certainly wouldn't be here. Again, a finely tuned mechanism addressed to a specific tax evasion problem, which actually doesn't even — just reduces the foreign tax credit is what we're talking about. It's not even a — it's not a jurisdictional problem. Point two, uh, Mr. Liu suggested, gee, these — all these uh, other formulas that we're suggesting are reasonable are just — are vulnerable to the same sort of criticism that we're making, and that's not true. Uh, The criticism that we're making is that the California formula disproportionately assigns interest expense to non-taxable income. All of those other formulas do it on an even-handed, non-discriminatory basis. And finally, uh, his suggestion that because the statute is internally consistent, it is therefore constitutional, is a non-sequitur. It would be, I mean, if California had a statute that assigned income based on uh, the number of square miles in a state, that would be internally consistent, but I think would plainly be unconstitutional. And indeed, in, in cases involving retaliatory taxes, which are internally consistent, this Court has also held they are constitutional.
the Court has no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Hellerstein. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Tuesday, the 18th of January at 10 o'clock.